Save the date. SFA's 2023 Southern Foodways Symposium will be held October 20th and 21st in Oxford, Mississippi. Over meals and talks, we'll explore this year's theme. Where is the South? We'll ask questions like, how can we identify its edges? Can we mark its coordinates with bourbon, catfish, and berea? Can we map our present South onto the culinary and labor landscapes that preceded it? And what does the tendency to define space with borders tell us about ourselves? Join us as we wander, map, and engage in a lively debate about this place SFA calls home. Tickets will be available for purchase this summer. Stay tuned to southernfoodways.org for more details. This episode of Gravy finds us sitting on the docks of Aransas Bay in Rockport, Texas. Over the years, Gravy has shared many stories from Vietnamese immigrants who call Texas home. And we've dipped into the foodways those same immigrants packed for the journey. We've also sampled the culinary legacies they're building right now. Brisket pho, Viet Cajun crawfish, Vietnamese beef fajitas, just to name a very delicious few. While many of our stories have been centered in big cities like Houston, the mass migration of Vietnamese to the Texas Gulf Coast began in earnest in 1975 with the fall of Saigon. It impacted the foodscape, media, and politics of smaller towns along the Gulf Coast as well. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm Sarah Camp Milam. You're listening to Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells the stories of the changing American South. Evan Stern takes us to Rockport, Texas. The town of Rockport, Texas hugs the shores of Aransas Bay on the Live Oak Peninsula about 30 miles northeast of Corpus Christi. A popular destination for beachcombers since the late 1800s, one of its roughly 10,000 permanent residents is Julie LePan. A native of Vietnam, she can be found most mornings trawling for shrimp in the area's waters, as she has for more than 37 years. Yeah, I start going, like, I waking up like 3 or 4 o'clock a.m. every day. Yeah, sometimes, you know, 30 days uh, in a month we go, you know, no day off. Yeah, it's very hard. It, it's hard working in the boat and all that. <laughs> Julie and I are talking in a rented gym that now houses the parish of St. Peter's Catholic Church. The daughter of a fisherman, she took up shrimping after moving here in 1985. But despite her many years in the trade, she says she still has days that barely cover the cost of fuel. Even so, she's generously contributed her catch to the church's monthly fundraiser, which is what has brought us out on this cool fall Saturday. You know, the people lie, so, you know, I can donate, so. As we speak, an assembly line of women, led by local seafood market owner Flower Bui, are seated at a long table making summer spring rolls. They carefully take turns wrapping the shrimp in the moistened rice paper stuffed with vermicelli, beef, and lettuce that, when finished, will be sold for $5 a pair. This is the first spring roll, and then the shrimp, we have to boil them first. And we have to um, we have to peel and divan and cut in half shell, and then we roll in a spring roll. This is a Vietnamese tradition they know for a long time. In it come from my parents. They're beautiful, right? Yes. 
These rolls are just one of many offerings, a mostly white, English-speaking crowd of locals is lining up to purchase from a tent in the building's parking lot. Managing the orders is St. Peter's Choir Director Tam Wynn, who rattles off today's menu. You have your blessed egg rose, your summer spring rose, your uh, beef kebab, uh, chicken fried rice, lo mein, jumbo fried shrimp, shrimp boil, wings and rice, boon combo. The boon combo, it comes with um, your vermicelli, your white noodles, your egg rose, um, the grilled meat, and then shrimp, and then of course your nukmam, uh, which is your uh, seasoning, and then a little bit of peanuts and cilantro and lettuce. This bounty is displayed in a glass case near the front of the tent, where a crew of volunteers have set up a makeshift kitchen, complete with a prep counter, fryer, and grill whose smoky scents fill the air. Some customers are taking their meals to go, while a few chow down family style at tables that have been set up inside the gym, mere feet from the altar. Overseeing this affair is Father Tung Tran. He steered this congregation for the past two years, and I speak with him after he returns from completing his morning deliveries. This is a monthly uh, food sale fundraiser, you know, and f from my point of view, it's a, a chance for people to work together and to, uh, to, uh, to serve others. Father Tran says St. Peter's was founded in the early 80s when a group of newly arrived Vietnamese gathered to build a church of their own. And he tells me its name carries some sacred symbolism. They were given the name St. Peter's. Uh, St. Peter's fishermen, you know, and a lot of the people here were uh, fisher, uh, fishers and shrimpers. In August of 2017, Hurricane Harvey slammed Rockport, destroying St. Peter's Chapel in the process. Rebuilding has proven a challenge, hence its current space and the need for today's fundraiser. Yet challenges are familiar to this community, many of whom fled the communist forces of the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese army to reach these shores. I was born in a little town called Ben Da, which translates to Port of Rocks. Remember that later. Lily Nguyen grew up attending services at St. Peter's. Her journey to the U.S. began in the spring of 1975, when, following nearly two decades of war and a drawdown of American troops and aid, the government of South Vietnam collapsed at the hands of a swift advance from the north. Her father, Hon Yok, had been a member of the Southern military who would have certainly faced jail. Knowing the Viet Cong was marching towards Binh Da, he told his family they had to leave immediately. So he secured a 40-foot boat. In the middle of the night, he gathered my, us up, said, take just, a, just a, one or two pair of clothes, just whatever you can carry with you, nothing else. We saw this light coming at, shooting at our boat, like, right there. And it tittered our boat, and my dad just gunned that boat out of there. That was a bomb. They dropped a bomb right there in front of us, and, and something just pushed that boat out, and we got out into the middle of the ocean. Dad didn't know where we were going, so luckily we were able to hit Thailand. So we're one of the first fisher, I mean, refugees to hit Thailand. Uh, we live off the boat in Thailand for three months. From Thailand, Lily and her family became just a few of more than 120,000, who in 1975 alone resettled in the U.S. through the Ford Administration's Refugee Assistance Act. A coordinated effort involving the military, faith groups, local governments, and organizations like the International Rescue Committee 
It aimed to pair arrivals with civilian sponsors who could ease their transitions by assisting with accommodation and job placement. In the Wins case, this process took them to Camp Pendleton in California, then Fort Chaffee in Arkansas, where they were matched with a family in Michigan. As they arrived in winter, it wasn't an easy transition. Yet in time, seeking a warmer climate and work as a shipbuilder, Mr. Wynn moved the family to New Orleans, a city whose industry and network of Catholic charities gave rise to a burgeoning Vietnamese enclave that still thrives today. But their travels weren't over. Dad found out that he can be a shrimper, be self-employed, don't depend on anybody, don't have a, a over it. And then he found our old priest from Benda. He was in Rockport. He uprooted us again. And he loved Rockport ever since then. He, you know, living there. He said, I'm not moving out of here. This is my Benda of the United States. Rockport, Port of Rock, Benda. It just becomes a part of him. He says, this is my town. Another congregant I meet at the church who followed a similar journey to Rockport is Train Kelsey. She was born on the Vietnamese island of Phu Quoc, near the coast of Cambodia. Fishing was our way of life there. That's because that's we're surrounded by water. Grandmother makes, um, used the anchovies to make fish sauce. Mom would, is a fishmonger. And she is also a farmer, and she raised pigs. She raised vegetables, she raised pigs. Within days of Saigon's collapse, Phu Quoc was invaded by Cambodia's army, the Khmer Rouge, who wanted to stop Vietnam's expansion. Though they were quickly expelled, these moves ultimately gave rise to the Vietnam-Cambodian War. And with the Viet Cong exerting an increasing presence on the island, Train's family made the decision to abruptly leave in 1976. So they snuck us on a boat. We were floating out at sea, and our boat died, <laughs> you know. And uh, But there was a military craft, huge, that rescued us. I think we would have died if they would not have picked us up, because the boat would not start. And we were starting to get thirsty, hungry, and there were babies. The American naval ship took them to Guam, and like the winds, they were sent to Arkansas's Fort Chaffee, which in 1975 alone processed over 50,000 refugees fleeing Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. From there, they followed sponsors to Rockport. But Train says their introduction to Texas was a little bumpy. They fed us a fried chicken. We weren't eating it because <laughs> I don't know what that is. But there was a bag of uh, Texas um, oranges. We ate that for dinner. Soon, though, they began to find comforts that reminded them of Fuquoc. There was a pier. Um, it was abandoned. It was a rock pier. There were oysters growing on there. So, oh my gosh, Mom, oysters. There's barnacles. And Dad went fishing the look, um, whatever perch and stuff that he could catch. That's what we ate. Almost like, almost like Vietnam. There's a bay, there's fishing, there's a church, there's just food. And safe. It's safe.
When we come back, we'll learn about the challenges Rockport's Vietnamese citizens faced as they adapted to life on the Texas coast. Simmons Catfish is a family-owned business that calls the Mississippi Delta home. The company is committed to quality catfish and, most importantly, to its employees. My name is Maria Esparza and I've been here 20 years at Simmons. I was born in Mexico, but I was raised in West Local, Texas. When I was 19, they brought us over here to Simmons on a working contract, and I haven't went nowhere since then. Maria works as a strip table supervisor, cutting fish at the Simmons Processing Plant in Yazoo City, the same Delta town that gave us author Willie Morris. The Simmons Company recently honored her 20 years of service. Simmons marked her anniversary with a gift of a living room set, a dining room set, and more. She recalls the celebration fondly. Our people from the plant, they gave me some presents. I mean, it just felt good. They all got up, applause. It's just feeling good that you do for them and they do for you and they love you. I mean, like I said, this is family right here. We didn't go nowhere. You ain't gonna find another job like this. The next time you crave catfish, baked, fried, or in a stew, look for Simmons Farm-Raised Catfish, a driver of the Delta economy, an employer with integrity, the home of Willie Morris and Maria Esparza. A list of vendors is online at SimmonsCatfish.com. For their commitment to quality catfish, their belief in their employees, and their support of this podcast, we thank them. The Vietnamese word for what we know as vermicelli is boon, spelled B-U-N. While I've enjoyed it for years, I'm embarrassed to say I was only recently corrected for pronouncing it bun. So... At St. Peter's, I take note when I hear an older man in an Aggie sweatshirt ask with a Texas drawl, what all do you get with the Boone combo? To me, this exchange says a lot about the familiarity and appreciation locals have developed for this food, which years ago was completely alien here. It was no less foreign in the village of Seadrift, which sits about an hour up the coast from Rockport. In 1975, its population was about 90% white, with a mere four black residents and no reported Asians. Yet within four years following work in fishing and the resettlement program's efforts not to overburden cities, 150 Vietnamese moved to Seadrift. That was no small number for a town of 1,200, and the community they found upon arrival was wrestling with the ripples of a nationwide recession, harsh memories of the Vietnam War, and a fishing industry that was already declining due to environmental threats and state and federal regulations. Fourth-generation fisherwoman, environmentalist, and sea drifter Diane Wilson recalls this period well. She tells me misunderstandings between these outsiders and residents about errors in practice, unspoken rules, and misplacement of crab lines gave rise to terrible tensions. Some people would, they would call the Vietnamese, oh, just some awful stuff. You have this whole community that doesn't speak English and they're trying to do that and there's a possibility of misunderstanding. So it's like, okay, let's get together and figure out how to do this and make it work. It's like none of that. It escalated until it just escalated and went out of control. The peak of this escalation in sea drift was sparked on August 3rd, 1979. That's when following a territorial dispute over traps, Salvan Nguyen, a crabber who'd immigrated from Vietnam, 
shot and killed local fisherman Billy Joe Applin. Sow and his brother were eventually acquitted by an all-white jury who agreed with their plea of self-defense. But within hours of this incident, three boats and a trailer owned by Vietnamese families were firebombed. In the days that followed, nearly 100 Vietnamese, mostly temporarily, fled town. At the same time, sensing a publicity and recruitment opportunity, the KKK descended on the coast, where they pursued a harassment campaign in towns like Seadrift, Palacious, Seabrook, and Rockport, which is something Lily remembers. Uh, certain part of the city, they had um, a cross, and they were lighting fire and then walking around town in the hood at night. We remember seeing it, and we see it on the news instead, but we didn't go out. And we were scared to go to school, or they kept us home for a, a week. Ultimately, Lily says the people of Rockport stuck up for her community. In time, through bridge building at town halls and education efforts facilitated by the Catholic Church, these groups learned how to work together, starting by using language that could be understood by all over CB radio. As a result of steps like these, by the 80s, tensions cooled and a mutual respect began to take root. Today, both Lily and Diane tell me shrimpers along the coast share common concerns as fuel costs, cheap imports from abroad, and pollution have made an already challenging industry even harder. I know right now we're trying to do a co-op to bring all the diverse, the Vietnamese, the Hispanic, and the white fishermen, bring them together as a co-op, and they be the bosses. Take away the middleman, and for them to make it diverse and to make it sustainable. And that is the only way they are going to survive. In regard to diversity, I've heard sea drift described as more of a mosaic than melting pot. The same can probably be said of Rockport, too as the Vietnamese community represents less than 2% of its citizens. And with shrimping on the decline, many younger Vietnamese Americans, like Lily, have moved to cities like Corpus. She says it's easy to understand why her generation is pursuing other opportunities. It's hard work. It's hot. Sometimes the storms comes in or there's rocky, and they're still out there trying. So leave, the smaller boats are going away. They are going to school, getting educations, and, you know, doing be the American way instead. What does this mean for the future of Rockport's Vietnamese community? Train, a former nurse, now runs a septic company with her husband. Lily's brother, Dat Nguyen, played seven seasons with the Dallas Cowboys and was the first Vietnamese-American player in the NFL. What's more... Dad's prowess on the field not only made him a star at Rockport High, but helped inspire the Wynn family to pursue a new culinary business that honored their roots. It got started because of the football team. We were feeding every Friday night and Saturday night. I mean, Friday night after each game. Um, and then the football team came up to my mom and said, Miss Wynn, you need to open a restaurant. My, our parents want to eat the food. That, that we're eating because we tell them every Friday we're here, we get egg rolls, we get pho, we get lo mein or, or whatever, and they want to, to try it. They will support you. Can, and so my dad kind of overheard and he goes, hey, that sounds good. They named the restaurant Who Dat, and upon referencing Dat and his older brother Who, 
Who was another talented player on Rockport's team? Friday night uh, games, um, they started to uh, chant because they were doing good. They were getting ready to go play off. They go, who that? Who that, boys? Who that? Who that, boys? So it became a chant. Mom goes like, well, I don't know what to name the restaurant. And the boys go, who that? That was 30 years ago. And today the family claims three locations in Texas. Lily owns and runs the outpost in South Corpus. Her niece Laura looks after the original in Rockport's neighboring village of Fulton, while cousins Liam and Na steer the one in Portland. All serve classics like pho and boon and were born of the family matriarch Dang Wen's influence. We do make everything from scratch, the sauces, the, the meat, the marinade daily. We will run out of stuff because there's only so much. My mom always said, you cook like you cook for me. That's been always been my on my mind. Their mother still cooks for them as she continues to hand prepare egg rolls for each location every week. Uh, Mom's still the building force. So when she retires, I think I'm, I'm gonna have to because I cannot do what she does on the uh, homemade egg rolls. And it's our family recipe and she loves doing it. So she keeps at it. For today's fundraiser, though, Lily's mother has donated the meat and left the egg rolls up to Flower Bui, who sells them by the dozen at the market she operates in Rockport. Others have chipped in noodles, tea, and vegetables. Many in the tent have volunteered their labor as they busy themselves freshly grilling skewers and frying shrimp. And as all perform their assigned tasks, Father Tran suggests that this event is about more than raising money. Food is very practical. Food uh, brings comfort. Uh, food is necessary. Food is uh, good. But the making of food, you know, the, the process, the preparation, the serving, the selling, all, all of these, I think, contribute to human interactions, human dynamics, and uh, build communities, build friendship. In talking with Father Tran and seeing the many here at work, I'm reminded that churches are made of people before brick and mortar. So are countries, states, cities, and towns. And for the women and men I meet at St. Peter's, Rockport, Texas, is the place they call home. Evan Stern produced and reported this episode of Gravy. He's the host and creator of Vanishing Postcards, named one of the best podcasts of 2022 by Digital Trends. An actor, singer, and sixth-generation Texan, he's performed on the stages of New York's Lincoln Center, Carnegie Hall, and the Oak Room at the Algonquin Hotel, where he was honored as a finalist for the Noel Coward Cabaret Award. We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music and Jazar for our donor music. Special thanks for this episode go to fact-checker Katie King and editor Olivia Terenzio. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is my co-host, Sarah Camp Milan. Mary Beth Lassiter is our publisher. Visit us at southernfoodways.org and watch Fat Thai, a film by Joe York that traces the path of Vietnamese fishermen to the Gulf Coast of Mississippi and Louisiana. After watching that film or listening to this podcast, please consider becoming a member or making a donation. Your dollars fund our work and help us make more gravy.